Well, good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Luke 24, uh, verses 13 through 35. We will uh, pick up reading right where Bonnie left off. Before we read God's Word, would you pray with me? Our Father, we do come to worship you this morning. We come to worship your Son, Jesus, in the power of your Spirit. We pray that you would come and be with us now, that you would, that, that you would open our hearts and our eyes as we read your Word and hear it proclaimed. Pray that you would guide me in the words that I say, that they would be true and right, and that they would exalt our Savior. Pray that you would work in each of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe uh, the message of the scriptures. Come now and be with us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. On that very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But... We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Disappointed with Jesus. Disappointed with Jesus? I mean, come on, Luke, it's Easter morning. How can you title your sermon, Disappointed with Jesus? Who could be disappointed with Jesus on Easter morning? I don't know. Maybe me. Maybe some of you. I mean, Easter's not Christmas and all, but uh, there's still a lot of hype around Easter. And in the midst of the energy and the excitement of Easter, the, the Easter baskets and the Easter egg hunts and maybe Easter presents, in the midst of the resurrection hymns and Easter dinners, as with Christmas, at some point, that all dies down and you are left with just Jesus. Is he all that you thought he would be? Does he live up to the hype? Is he enough? Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, of course he's enough. I'm not disappointed with Jesus. Why would anyone be disappointed with Jesus? Well, well, let's talk about that. Uh, we're going to, to actually talk about it in terms of hope. Uh, we're going to talk about it in terms of hope because of verse 21. Verse 21, the disciples on the road to Emmaus say, we had hoped. So our outline this morning, you can see it uh, on the back of your bulletin. We're going to talk about why don't we have hope, where do we find hope, and what is the source of hope. So first, why, why don't we have hope? Or why are we disappointed with Jesus? Well, it's, it's Easter. It's resurrection morning, right? We, we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And in our, our text this morning, we, we read of that first resurrection morning. It had been quite a week. Jesus and his disciples had entered Jerusalem to palm branches and singing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, we call it the triumphal entry. But that week had taken a nasty turn. Jesus was arrested on Thursday, tried by the Jewish council during the night, tried before the Roman government the next morning, crucified before lunch, died around three in the afternoon, was taken down from the cross and buried before the sun went down. It had been a long, hard day for the disciples. And it was now the Sabbath and they went home and they rested. On Sunday morning, some disciples go to the tomb. They find it empty. The apostles and the other disciples don't believe their tale. Maybe they don't believe it because they were women, and the testimony of women was inadmissible in that day. Boy, would those disciples feel dumb in a few hours. <laughs> Two of the disciples decided to head home. Maybe they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Maybe they had been following Jesus for some time, but all was over now. Passover was over. Jesus was over. 
And so they head home. On the way, they, they talk, trying to work out maybe exactly what went wrong. And while they talk, a stranger walks up. But it's not a stranger, it's Jesus. But verse 16 says their eyes are kept from recognizing him. They don't see Jesus. And the stranger asks them in verse 17, he says, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Notice they're sad. So sad they can't hide it. So sad it shows. And then Cleopas says in verse 18, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he's saying, where have you been? How can you not know? Everyone is talking about it. The unexpected tragedy, the dashed hopes. What things, the stranger says, concerning Jesus. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and now he's dead. Don't you know he's dead? And then comes verse 21. But we had hoped. Just rest there for a minute. But we had hoped. What do those words mean? We had hoped. We had hoped, but now our hope is gone. We had hoped, but now all hope is lost. We had hoped, but now our hope has been disappointed. They are disappointed with Jesus. Why are they disappointed? Well, well what was their hope? We had hoped. In what were they hoping? Uh, one commentator says their hope was that Jesus would crown his prophetic work by redeeming the people, that is, by setting them free from their enemies and inaugurating the kingdom of God. You see, see, they hoped for the overthrow of Rome, their enemies. They hoped that Jesus would bring God's kingdom, his righteous and just rule into the world. They hoped that Jesus would bring freedom and peace and joy. But now he's dead. And that's all over. Why are they disappointed? They had hoped that Jesus would make a show of power and satisfy their felt need of the moment, further their agenda. They had hoped that Jesus would show up right now and make things right. But Jesus dead in the grave is a bitter disappointment. What good did he do? He died in weakness. He died leaving the Romans in power. He died leaving Israel in functional slavery. He did not rise up as a powerful king. He did not defeat their enemies. These disciples looked around and thought, our world is falling apart. The, the Romans, the oppression, the slavery. And then they looked at Jesus in the grave and they say, we had hoped. Jesus in the grave is a bitter disappointment. And this is often why Jesus does not give us hope. We, we either ignore him, I mean, that's one possibility, or we try to co-opt him. 
Oftentimes we put our hope in the things of this life. We ignore Jesus and look to the stuff of this world, but the stuff of this world, of course, fails us. Maybe sooner, it may be later, but it will fail us because the stuff of this life is limited to this life, right? It cannot give us a hope that goes beyond the grave. At some point, everything in this life in which we hope will break and decay and falter and fail. And so often, even as Christians, we, we functionally, practically ignore Jesus. We despise him as irrelevant or useless for our cause. And so we remain hopeless Christians. But that's not quite the mistake of the, these disciples, right? They had hoped in Jesus. But they hoped in Jesus for this life. They had co-opted Jesus to their agenda, freedom from Rome. You see, as long as you are looking to Jesus to make a show in the flesh, to use this worldly power, right, to rise up as a great king, to bring about fleshly ends, to satisfy our this worldly agenda, to defeat Rome, you too will be disappointed with Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to further my agenda, Right? If, if I co-opt Jesus to my agenda, if I expect Jesus to make my marriage better or to boost my career or to fatten my bank account, if I expect Jesus to ensure my children are safe or obedient or successful, if I expect Jesus to fulfill all my worldly hopes and dreams, whatever they may, de- may be, I too will be disappointed with Jesus. Right? Have you ever thought about him that, well, well Jesus, you didn't come through there. Or have you ever been angry that Jesus didn't answer your prayer? Or have you ever faced some bitter disappointment in life that led to bitterness toward God? Or have you ever thought, my world is falling apart. Why won't you just put it back together, Jesus? Jesus, why don't you just show up right now and make things right? Maybe you are trying to co-opt Jesus to your agenda rather than seeing yourself as taken up into his. And so we end up disappointed. Disappointed with Jesus. Which brings us then to the, the second point, which is, okay, where do we find hope? Our disappointment kind of begs the question, who is this Jesus after all? Notice their answer on the road. Verse 19, they say Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. Jesus was strong and mighty and powerful. Verse 21, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. Jesus, they thought, would be a king like the kings of old, like King David. He would conquer Israel's enemies and bring rest to the land. But he was put to death. Apparently, they think he wasn't so powerful. Apparently, he wasn't like David. It's now the third day, says verse 21. Uh, Jesus said something about the third day. They kind of remember that, but they don't understand it. And Jesus is still dead. Some women, they say, went to the tomb. They didn't find his body. They had a vision of angels. The angels said he was alive. He's not in the tomb. We don't understand it. As far as we're concerned, Jesus is still dead. It may be a little amazing to us. Uh, We we think the report of the women, the vision of the angels, what more do you need? But they don't get it. 
As far as they're concerned, Jesus is still dead. The, the empty tomb and the vision of the angels only seems to make things worse for them. Confusion compounds grief. We don't know what's going on. We only know Jesus they did not see. Notice the irony there. The last thing Cleopas says in verse 24 is him they did not see. It's his final statement. It's his last word, right? If you don't see Jesus, it must mean Jesus is not there. And if Jesus is not there, he must still be dead. And if Jesus is still dead, he's been defeated. If Jesus has been defeated, his work is fruitless. His movement is over. And that's where Cleopas lands. <coughs> but you see the irony. His last words. Him they did not see. But he's right there. In front of him, in that moment, but him they did not see. And it's at this point that Jesus rebukes them in verse 25. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. See, why don't they, why don't they see him? It's not because of lack of evidence, but it's because they are slow of heart to believe the scriptures. And so Jesus decides to have a Bible study right there on the Emmaus Road. And he, he walks them through Moses and all the prophets. And he says, look, the, the whole Bible, meaning the whole Old Testament, speaks of the Messiah. It speaks of the Christ, both his death and his resurrection. Now, now some of you here may, may find all this a bit difficult to swallow, right? Jesus risen from the dead, Jesus defeating death. But, but these two disciples, they should have believed, I mean, here, here Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. They had, they had the prophets who foretold the resurrection of Jesus. They had eyewitnesses who confirmed that what the prophets foretold had come true. They, they heard the message of the angels that Jesus was alive, but they refused to believe. And so what does Jesus do about that? I mean, think about it. If you were Jesus, what would you have done at this point? You and I would have said, hey, guys, it's me. <laughs> Don't you see me? I'm right here. Now do you believe me? Now didn't you understand? I'm risen from the dead. But notice that Jesus didn't do that. This is the one point in history where Jesus might have just naturally shown himself to the doubting disciples. That's what we often want, right? I mean, Jesus, if you really want me to believe in you, just show up. Just give me a sign. Just let me see. And he's standing right there, but he doesn't do it. What does he do? He opens the scripture. Apparently, Jesus thought a better way to convince his disciples that he had risen from the dead was not to make an appearance, but was to turn to the Bible. I think we need to get this. It needs to sink in. We need to get this for our own hearts. We need to get this for our evangelistic zeal, right? What people need is actually not miraculous visions, but spirit-applied scripture. That's what God used to warm their hearts. Now, I, I know, I realize, okay, but there will be a miraculous vision by the end of this text. <laughs> but this is not where Jesus goes first. He goes to scripture. 
And if you are doubting, and if you are disappointed, and if you are wondering whether it's all true, and if you lack hope, there is nothing better to do than to read the Bible. If you have friends who doubt or who don't believe all this resurrection nonsense, well, the best thing to do is to read the Bible with them. Let God's Word work in their hearts. This is what Jesus was doing, right? Uh, this is Jesus' methodology. He takes them to Scripture. And what do they say later in verse 32? He says, they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the Scriptures? That's our hope, right? That, that, that men's and women's hearts would burn within them with a fiery vision of who Jesus is. And Jesus uses Scripture to do that. Interestingly, though, after Jesus' Bible study in verse uh, 27, they still don't see. Uh, they don't see him. They end up stopping at their house. They invite Jesus in to share a meal. When they sit down, Jesus takes some bread. He blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. And now suddenly, in verse 31, we're told that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Where do these doubting disciples see Jesus? In the breaking of the bread. Suddenly they recognize him. They specifically mention this later on. They bring it back up to the other disciples in verse 35. Uh, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now we'll come back to that in a moment. But for now I just want you to, to note. right? Jesus approaches these disappointed disciples. And where does he turn to give them hope? To, to word and sacrament. Jesus opens the scripture and breaks the bread, and through these things their hearts burn and their eyes are opened. Are you disappointed? Disappointed with life? Disappointed perhaps even with Jesus? Lacking the hope that is your birthright as a Christian? Turn to God through word and sacrament, right? These are the means God has given for you to find hope. God has given his word and sacrament as the means through which we find hope. Now, they are not the thing in which we hope. Word and sacrament are a means, right? As a well is a means to get water. But the well may not be the, the source of the water, right? The source is some underground spring, perhaps. The well is the means by which we, we tap into that source. The, the means of hope, the place we find hope is, is word and sacrament, but they are not the source of that hope. Remember, why, why don't we have hope? Because we look to Jesus for this life, to fulfill our agenda. And so we end up disappointed with Jesus. We, we look at life and we think, my world is falling apart. Jesus, why won't you put it back together? Why won't you do something? We want Jesus to show up now and make things better. But Jesus refuses to dance to our tune, and so we, we end up disappointed. Jesus, instead of immediately showing up on the road, then points his disciples to word and sacrament. And through those means, their hearts burn and their eyes are opened. But what is it, then, that revives their hope? And brings us to the third point. What is the, the source of our hope? 
Now, the short answer you can figure out because this is Easter morning. What is it that revives our hope? It's the resurrection. There's no secret. To the disciples on the Emmaus Road, Jesus' death seems like a failure to make things right. And in a similar way, we end up disappointed with Jesus. But if Jesus' death seems like a failure, Jesus' resurrection overturns that and declares his victory. You see, our plan is Jesus just just show up right now and take away my trouble. But Jesus' resurrection shows us four things. It shows us that his plan is bigger, that his suffering is purposeful, that his timing is perfect, and that his abiding presence is real. Don't worry, we'll go through those one at a time. (laughs) First, Jesus' plan is bigger. When Jesus begins to open the scripture to those two on the road in verse 26, he says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was necessary, he says, for Christ to first suffer and then enter into his glory. What is Jesus saying? He's he's saying that God's plan has not been thwarted by Jesus' death. Their plan might have been thwarted, but God's plan was not thwarted. And I think we, we probably, you can sympathize with that. You've probably had that experience, right? Um, have you ever been uh, sad or disappointed that, that some, uh, by some unexpected tragedy or some tragic twist in life? God's plan has not been thwarted. Your plan might have been thwarted, but God's plan has not been thwarted. God's plan here involved the suffering of the Messiah. And Jesus explains it a little bit more uh, a few verses later in verses 46 and 47. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. See, God's plan was not simply to free one nation, Israel, from the bonds of another nation, Rome. God's plan was for the crucifixion of of the Christ, for for his resurrection from the dead, so that the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. God's plan is that the power of sin and death itself would be broken. And this took place in the resurrection when death could not keep its hold on Jesus. See, Jesus did not come to make us happy with this life. He came to defeat sin and death. He came to bring forgiveness and life eternal. He came to bring us hope, not simply hope uh, in this life, but resurrection hope, hope that defeats death. See, see, hope in this life is always short-lived because death always wins in the end. But Jesus defeated death, which means the hope he brings transcends even death itself. And so though we die, the scriptures say, yet we will live, right? Not meaning that our disembodied souls will float around somewhere in the clouds, meaning that as Jesus rose from the dead, so we too will rise from the dead on the last day. Though we taste death, we will not drown in it, but we'll rise as Jesus did. That's our hope. It's a hope that transcends this life. 
Now let me ask you, is your hope in Jesus for this life only? Paul warns about that in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember we read it earlier. He said, if in this life only we hope in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied, which is really strong language. Is your hope in Jesus for this life only? Meaning, do you only hope that Jesus is, is there to make this life better? Do you look to Jesus just to make your agenda work? Are you hoping that Jesus will get on board with your plan? Or do you see, that his, do you see his work for, for what it is? The work of redemption, not simply from the power of Rome, but from, from death and all the power that it holds. And surely that has implications for Rome. Right? That Jesus frees us from death has implications for the enemies we face in this life. They can't ultimately defeat us, right? The worst they can do is kill our bodies, but God will undo that on the last day, just as he did for Jesus. Whatever they take from us, God will restore on the last day. And so Christ redeeming, uh, redeeming us from the power of sin has many implications for this life, but none of them are that we hope in this life. Jesus' plan is bigger and better than making life work. It's making all life new, on the last day, when his resurrection life will transform the whole world. Second, Jesus' suffering is purposeful. Again, Jesus says, verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Yes, Jesus suffered earthly defeat. His enemies got the better of him. He was arrested, tried, falsely convicted, and put to death. By all appearances, he lost. But not only did this not hinder God's plan, it was necessary in order to fulfill God's plan. And we just talked about why that was, because it's through his death that the forgiveness of sins come. It's through his death that the resurrection comes and the breaking of the power of sin and death itself. But here's what I want you to consider for the moment. As Christians, we are told that we now share in the sufferings of Christ. <clears throat> Paul mentions this three times in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, For as we share abundantly, there are lots of things you want abundantly. This maybe isn't one of them. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort, too. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, narrowly, you might think that, that this sharing of the sufferings of Christ only means when we suffer persecution in the name of Christ. That, that, that would be true. But there's another sense in which all of our suffering is a sharing in his sufferings. Why would that be? Well, because as his people, we suffer in union with Christ. Right? We, we, we are united to him by faith. All of our suffering is in that context now. And so all of our suffering, though it, it's, it's not making an atonement like the suffering of Jesus did, but all of our suffering is redeemed by God for our good and his glory. And, and so, right, even Joseph in the Old Testament could say the harm done against him for evil, God intended for good. 
But Paul will say in the New Testament, right, that all things work together for good for those who love God. He says in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or the writer of Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. He's talking about enduring suffering there. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? What's the point? The point is that as Christ's suffering not only did not hinder God's plan, but was necessary for the accomplishment of it, so our suffering does not hinder God's plan in our lives, but is an integral part to his redemptive purposes for us. To this we have been called, Peter says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21. See, we want Jesus to show up right now and make things right, but his plan is bigger and his and our suffering is purposeful. It has a part in that plan. Third, uh, Jesus' timing is perfect. Those disciples on the road wanted Jesus to defeat Rome and bring political freedom. Now, really, as you read through Scripture, the promise of Jesus' kingdom is that one day that will be true. The, The picture of Revelation is that every earthly king will bow their knee to Jesus. But before that, Jesus had to die. And then he rose. And the moment he revealed himself to these two disciples in particular, he immediately disappeared. And 40 days later, Jesus doesn't conquer Rome, but he ascends into heaven to take up the throne of heaven. Leaving Rome, in some sense, to continue to oppress and destroy. Now, the timing thing can be a bit tricky. We want Jesus to show up now and make things right, but he rose and went to heaven and one day he will return. And here's the question for us. Who knows what timing is best? Jesus or us? It's a trick question, don't answer it. (laughs) See, when we demand that Jesus fix our life, or when we sulk that Jesus hasn't fixed our life, we are saying we know what's best when, and Jesus is late. But Jesus' timing is perfect. Uh, We're getting a bit ahead of of, of Easter, right? But at the ascension, the angels said, he will come back just as he left with the clouds. But until then, we, we wait and we work. We wait for his timing. The disciples uh, at that, just before that, they said, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the time. It's just that simple. It's not for you to know the time. doesn't mean God doesn't have a time, but it's not for us to know. His timing is perfect. We wait and we, we work. We serve him as we wait. So Jesus' plan is bigger than ours. His, our, our suffering in that plan is purposeful. His timing is perfect. And fourth, Jesus' presence is real. 
Uh, Jesus' appearance, right, in the, in the breaking of the bread to the, these two disciples must have left an impression on them. Uh, for one, uh, that's one of the first things they say when they find the other disciples in verse 35, right? They, 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 they talk about how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And the breaking of the bread, of course, by Jesus' command, became a regular part of Christian worship. Jesus' appearance here uh, in this text is, is one of the reasons that the church has come to expect to meet with Jesus at his table. Because after the resurrection, Jesus kept showing up at mealtimes. And remember, Jesus' appearance here is not because he suddenly showed up. Actually, he was already there. But only now were they given eyes to see what was right there all along. For us today, Jesus is, is not visible, right? But, but he has sent his spirit. And so he is present. Invisible does not mean absent. At least not when the Spirit of God is at work. And Jesus promised in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in, our midst, in their midst. He promised in Matthew 28, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have the promise of Jesus' presence in our midst with us to the end of the age. The fact that we cannot see him does not mean he is not with us. And of course we need his presence, don't we? The truth is, Jesus does not promise to take us out of trouble now. But he does promise to be with us in that trouble now. And the Lord's Supper is a, is a sign and seal of his presence with us. And the fellowship that we have with him. Jesus is the good shepherd, right, of, of whom we can say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the Lord's Supper is a meal of which we can say, you have prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That here Jesus has prepared a meal for us that we might dine with him. Our world is falling apart. I probably don't need to convince you of that, right? Our worlds are falling apart. Cry out to Jesus in the midst of that. And when you do, remember that, that his plan is bigger than you can imagine. That your suffering is purposeful in that plan. That his timing is perfect and he will return and put all things right. And that in the meantime, his presence is real and he will shepherd you through the valley. Let's pray. Our Father, give us eyes to see Jesus, to know by faith that he is present with us in the midst of our struggles, to know that he is with us uh, when we are weak and when we suffer, when we are confused, when we are tempted, when we struggle, when we are sad. Help us to remember that our Savior is with us in the midst of that, caring for us in ways that we cannot understand. And help us to rest in His saving love, in His resurrection love. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.